Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this special episode, historian Frank McDonough returns to the festival to talk about his book The Hitler Years, Disaster 1940-1945, the second volume in his history of the Third Reich. Frank is in conversation with actor and voice of the audiobook Paul McGann. The episode was recorded via Zoom on the 4th of December 2021. Welcome, everybody. Hello, Frank. Hello, Paul. <laughs> each time, each time we get together to talk, um, particularly about, particularly about Adolf Hitler, it always reminds me that it was it was Adolf Hitler that kind of well, it was he brought us together when I first met you. It was to talk about Hitler. Um, I mean, for those who don't know, and why should you? Where we're from in Liverpool, there's this lovely urban myth, isn't it, that um, a young Adolf Hitler before he was world famous. Um, spent a couple of years there sleeping on his brother's sofa. Anyway, this this story's like the cab drivers talk about it and your mum tells you about it when you're a kid. Um, and we were doing a telly thing, weren't we? And you, got, you, you came as a, what I suppose would be called a talking head on the telly um, to tell me it was all baloney. Anyway, <laughs> and we've been talking about him ever since. Um, Frank, basically we got an hour and I thought the best way we could do it is if I... Um, read some extracts out, we maybe talk around the extracts and maybe hang it on the idea that, that um, the same shape as you wrote the book, that is um, in a chronological style. Um, so, you know, say we take an ex- one extract from each chapter, effectively each year, then maybe talk around it. Um, that should get us through an hour and um, let's get straight into it. Actually, before I do, talking of the chronological style of the book, which I loved. I mean, I am general reader. I am precisely the kind of, I've always thought that the kind of person that you, you're thinking about when you put your books out. So I love them. I lap them up. And what's more, because I read them as well for audio, I, you know, I'm lucky enough to get fed and modestly remunerated to read them. Um, but it's a real strength, you know? So it kind of, for me, um, it's not an academic. It's great. What's lovely, you can latch onto it. It reads like a thriller. That, I mean, that decision, did that, was that a decision that made itself? I mean, was there, was there another strong alternative, to, 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 if you will, to put it in a chronological order? Well, oh, there's, two, there's two ways of going about this kind of book, isn't there? One is to kind of um, to, to make it thematic. Now, if you make it thematic, that, that, that actually makes it easier for you, really, because you can break it up into different themes. So you have a theme about Hitler, the dictator. You'd have Hit, the Hitler youth. You'd have women, you'd have, then yeah. you'd have the army, then you'd have, you know, sort of um, opposition to Hitler, um, then you'd have the Holocaust, and they'd all be separate themes. So you'd, you'd deal with it in themes. And some of the other books on the Third Reich, um, Michael Burley's book on the Third Reich, it deals with themes. It's not a chronological book, it, it, it's in yeah. themes. Richard Evans's three-volume history of the Third Reich, it's also in themes, it's broken up into themes. So I wanted a book that had a different structure from that and, and a different structure from all the other books that have been written on it. Number one, there's never been a book that just concentrated on the Third Reich from 1933 until 1945. If you take the other books that have been written, a third of those books is written about the period before Hitler came to power. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start in 1933. So I wanted to sort of put you there in January 1933. I mean, the first volume starts in Hitler's apartment 
on the 1st of January 1933. And each so, chapter, um, then, no, again, what's lovely is each chapter, generally they begin with... Like a with New Hitler's Year's speech, yeah, Hitler's so, New Year yeah. message, yeah. So it puts so, you there, you feel like you're... Yeah, so I wanted to get, have that feeling of like sort of it, it was a story and also that it, that it was what I would call, I would call it a kind of analytical narrative. So I guide you through every year, every single year is examined from January, like you said, when you were doing the audio book, you know, every year painstakingly goes from January through to December. So, and it's, it's done like that. Now, because of that structure, um, it, it's a different kind of way of doing it. Because when you do a thematic, where you think, oh, youth, right, I'll look at youth. So you start looking at everything yeah. related to youth and you stick it in that particular chapter. With this one, it's completely different. And the way I went about constructing it was I decided, because I'm a big fan of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's films, and then I saw a documentary about uh, Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, Janet Lee was in it, you know, the one who, pl- uh, she, you oh, know, yeah. she, plays, um, she plays the woman in, in Psycho who robs the money and then she ends up in the Bates Motel, doesn't she? She ends up getting killed, of course. And she come, came to the set and said to adult, Alf, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> Adolf, Hitchcock. Adolf, Adolf Hitchcock there. But you... she, she, came, she came to the set and said, oh, I've been looking at this script, um, Alfred, you know, and I, I've got a few changes uh, I, I can yeah. think of for my character. And uh, Hitchcock said, no, no, you can't make any changes. He said, that's the script. And he said, here's the shooting script. And the, she, he gave her the shooting script, which is a big, thick script. And it had been illustrated, you know, by by an illustrator. Every scene, storyboarded, everything was storyboarded. So I thought, I'll storyboard the book. Um, And that took about three months. So what I did was I storyboarded every chapter. All the chronology is in every chapter. And, of course, all that stuff came, came out. But, of course, it led me down different roads because as I constructed a massively detailed chronology, it was like, oh, God, look at this. This happened. This guy committed mm. suicide, or there was this assassination, or whatever, and that 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 sort of changed the way that I went, where the chronology went, and so therefore I didn't know. It wasn't like one of them, you know, one of them books where you know they say you know the worst book is you take an argument and then you try and find material to fit your argument. Sure. I did it the opposite way. I took the chronology and followed it. And that way it was more of a mystery where it would end up and, and which yeah. things would be highlighted. And I think that, you know, when we were discussing it, when I was discussing it with Paul, he brought out things that he thought had been highlighted that he, he never knew about. And that was the way it was for me. It was like, oh, look at this. This, this is interesting. I'll go down that road. During, um, I mean, you were working still during this year, during lockdown, weren't you? I mean, were there any times, I mean, did that change the way you worked or did, did it have any effect at all on I mean, did well, it mean- funnily enough, I finished it on the 16th of February. The actual draft of it was finished on the 16th of February. Oh, and then yeah. it I, I was getting copy edited then. So what I did in lockdown was more of the kind of copy editing and the sharpening of the yeah. book and stuff like that. In many ways, I wish I wish, I wish, I, it hadn't been written then. I'd have, you know, I'd have filled the days more in lockdown because what I found in lockdown is without writing this book, which was so absorbing, it's like every day takes it. It's, it's, it's every day takes a year. <laughs> Should we, um, in that spirit, let's go into, um, let me read a bit first. And this first, Extract from the book. 
is from chapter one, 1940, which you call Blitzkrieg Triumphant. Um, and it concerns, it's in February, 1940, 1940. And it's just before the, well, it's just about the planned invasion of France. It's about um, uh, Case Yellow and it describes the Mechelen incident. Maybe, Maybe you could briefly, before I read it, or shall I yeah, read it yeah, out yeah, first? Yeah, then... well, the, Mecha, the, the, Mech, the 1940 chapter, of course, is, is, is the triumphant year for Hitler. You know, that's the year that he defeats France. That's yeah. the year that there's a Battle of Britain, which he doesn't win. And that's the year when he decides to have Operation Barbarossa, the attack on the Soviet Union, right at the end. So those three big sort of areas of that year. The Mechelen incident was um, a, a, a German pilot in an aeroplane had the plans for Case Yellow, the attack on France, in, in a briefcase. And what happened was his, his reconnaissance plane, uh, it, it went into Belgium and it crashed. And he was found. He tried to destroy the papers that he had in his in his briefcase, but they were found. He tried to burn well, them behind a bush, and then he tried to, yeah, he tried to burn them behind a bush. And, and, and when they got him in a room, he, he tried, he to, tried to burn stove. them again. When yeah, they arrested yeah. him, he tried to burn them again in a stove, but they found yeah. them anyway. That the the the, the uh, Belgium the Belgian foreign minister talked to the German ambassador. And he said, "Look, we found the pl- we found what is a plan here to attack Belgium and then attack France." You know, in in the in these plans, you know, and he said the only thing missing is the date, yeah. and 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 the time, and so they feed that back to the Allies, and of course, then Hitler is faced with the the Allies know that he's going to attack through Belgium, so Hitler decides, I've got Do to come up with it? an alternative plan. Do the Allies believe it? Yeah, the Allies believed it. Uh, the French were a bit sceptical. The French were always sceptical, really. But the French were a bit more sceptical. But the, the British believed it. They said, he's going back to his plan for 1914. Again, the Germans are going to attack through Belgium and then attack France. This is from uh, Chapter 1. <clears throat> In February, Hitler decided that a rethink was required on the existing idea for Case Yellow, prompted by the unexpected Mechelen incident. Hitler now wanted a less predictable plan. General Erich von Manstein, the chief of staff of General Gerd von Rundstedt, who was to be the chief of staff of Army Group A for the German attack in the West, was also unsatisfied with Case Yellow, which he thought resembled the Schlieffen Plan of 1914, suggesting an initial thrust through Belgium and the Netherlands. In seven memoranda, Manstein argued that the main part of the Panzer attack in Western Europe should be led by Army Group A, in a surprise thrust through the seemingly impenetrable Ardennes Forest, which was regarded as impassable by tanks. Then they would bridge the River Meuse and break through at Sedan, before sweeping towards the English Channel, with the panzers at the spearhead, thereby creating a corridor, trapping the Allied armies on two sides. A second assault led by Army Group B would attack through the Netherlands and Belgium, but this would be a diversionary assault designed to lure the Allied armies northwards and into the ingenious German trap. The bold plan was supported by Rundstedt, but Walter von Brauchitsch, the supreme commander of the German Army High Command, the OKH, felt that the plan was far too risky. He feared the panzer units needed to bridge the River Meuse would end up in a traffic jam and become a sitting target for Allied bombers. Franz Halder, the chief of general staff at OKH, had effectively sidelined Manstein in the previous months, by moving him to an insignificant post in Szczecin in Poland. None of Manstein's memoranda for Case Yellow had yet reached Hitler. On February the 7th, 1940, Rudolf Schmundt, 
Hitler's chief military aide, listened to a talk by Manstein during a war game conference in Koblenz, and he was deeply impressed by his ideas. Schmund decided to invite Manstein to a military conference about Case Yellow, with key army commanders at the new Reich Chancellery on the morning of the 17th of February. This gave Manstein the opportunity to present his plans to Hitler face to face. The Fuhrer was transfixed as Manstein cleverly outlined how his plan would work. By the end, Hitler declared himself enthusiastic, especially about the deployment of panzer units to spearhead the assault. From this point on, Manstein's sickle-cut thrust through the Ardennes suddenly became the plan that Hitler had apparently favoured all along. That's, lo- yeah. that's nice. So Hitler kind of adopted yeah. it. it so, so basically, sort of adopted it, it, it was, his own. Yeah, yeah. So Hitler, what Hitler does was then, of course, it becomes Hitler's plan. Uh, it shows the sort of haphazard nature of the regime. Here's a guy, isn't it, Manstein, who's been sidelined. You know, he's been sidelined. And, and really, the, the major top brass have come up with a plan which is very repetitive. It goes back to 1940. So really, and, and the real reason why... Uh, Germany wins in 1940 is because of that plan. Because the plan that's mentioned there, Paul, it comes off brilliantly, doesn't it? Because what well, happens is they attack through Belgium, but it's a diversionary attack. And then the, the, the attack comes through the through the Ardennes. They, bri- they do bridge the River Meuse, and then they do go all the way to Dunkirk, don't they? And so really, you know, the British and the French are beaten. They're beaten by a better tactical plan because, as we know, um, they were militarily superior. They had more tanks, they had more aircraft. Yeah, yeah. They were just in the wrong places. And that, and that really – it get, but it turns Hitler, doesn't it, into this kind of super military commander. He believes now that he's, he's invincible. And it happens really quick. Yeah, actually, there's a, if, you, if you don't mind, there's another tiny bit uh, mm. later on um, – where he's, you've written about him going around. Yeah, I'll, I'll just read it. Um, this is Hitler in Paris. Before returning to Germany, Hitler wanted to visit Paris. On the 23rd of June, he undertook a three-hour whistle-stop tour, accompanied by his favourite architects, Albert Speer and Hermann Giesler, as well as the acclaimed sculptor Arno Becker. Arno Brecker. It was a cloudy day when Hitler arrived at Le Bourget Airport at dawn, The streets were completely deserted. Most Parisians had either fled the city or stayed indoors. During his brief car journey, Hitler visited visited the Paris Opera House, the Pantheon, the Eiffel Tower, Les Invalides. Hitler seemed visibly moved while viewing Napoleon's tomb. Napoleon was the last ruler who'd attempted to conquer Europe, but he'd been stopped in the end by a more powerful international coalition. In 1940, it seemed doubtful that Hitler would meet the same fate. The triumph in Western Europe was undoubtedly Hitler's greatest military triumph. He already saw himself as a great politician, but now he considered himself to be something of a military genius. The generals who doubted him beforehand had been proved spectacularly wrong. Yodel later observed that after his military victories between 1939 and 40, Hitler became convinced of the infallibility of his judgment. Yet Germany's triumph was, this, like you just said, was essentially a tactical victory made possible by Manstein's sickle cut sickle stroke thrust through the Ardennes. Yeah. So Hitler, Hitler, of course, he'd never, I mean, this was, it was new to him, but he quickly adopts for himself the mantle of military genius. Um, and in a way, in a way, he loses some of the strengths that he had as the politician. 
So he moves from being the politician in 33 to 39. And he, he's a very clever politician. And, you know, and he outwits, you know, Chamberlain and he outwits Deladier and he outwits quite a lot of people all the way through that period. But now he's focused totally on the military and he leaves the domestic uh, uh, home front. He leaves it to all these different ministries. So it's kind of chaotic. It's a little bit chaotic. Inside yeah. Germany, but Hitler, he moves to this, you know, grand military HQ well, well, doesn't you, he, in, in Rastenburg. Well, it kind of takes his, if, you know, it kind of takes his eye off the ball politically. You mean? Because he's just like, so na- he's just totally now he's just totally completely obsessed with the war. All he sees all day is military memoranda. He's surrounded by military men. He's not, and also these military men, you know, these aren't the guys who were in the beer halls in Munich. You know, they were the people he hung out with, and you know, and Hitler wasn't upper class. He was like, in fact, he was, you know, petty bourgeois, you could say. And he felt really uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I think at one point he said everyone surrounding him is called von this and von that. You know, they're, they're all aristocrats, yeah. you know, and he feels really uncomfortable with them. He's the and so he's Colonel. thrust into this, yeah, he's thrust yeah. into this relationship of, and he feels uncomfortable because, of course, they, they, they operate in a different way. They speak a different kind of language, uh, and 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 it's kind of hard for him. He's an autodidact, you know, and he he sort of looks down on them in a way. He thinks, "Oh, you had all the privileges, and I was sort of stuck in Vienna doing nothing." So, in a way, there's a kind of clash there between those two worlds: the world of Hitler, the beer hall orator, who's gone. <laughs> And now we've got like the, the military. And, and like you were just saying, that agile, in, like in the previous one, the agile. Yeah, there's, there's no chance you know, of it being agile because they're yeah. pinning him down. Yeah, interesting. 1941, um, this is chapter two, uh, which you've called the War of Annihilation. War of Annihilation. Um, and of course, in this extract, we're, we're going to. This is about the events around Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, so perhaps, if you, if you will, um, perhaps just summarise the events around the planning of, of the invasion of the Soviet Union, um, Barbarossa. But, and I was thinking as well, maybe um, to ask you, I was really taken when I, when I read it, and something I'd never understood or known, even known about before, was really the... Um, was the part that the Japanese played, or rather, the you know, he, doesn't he make a directive, you know, about cooperation, cooperation with Japan, and it had it, it, it ends up having an effect on. Well, anyway, you can you can tell it better than well, I he can. Well, he, he comes to an arrangement with 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 Japan, you know, where, whereby you know Germany will take, you know, Germany will look after the European theatre of the war and and the Italians and the Japanese will look after the the, the Pacific uh, part. Um, but what's more important is that the Japanese come to a deal with Stalin. They come to a deal with Stalin in the in the, at the in the same period, which actually frees up the um, it frees up the 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 Siberian troops that that that, that can be used by, by Stalin. But that chapter really is focused around Operation Barbarossa and the way that it takes what happened was Hitler, remember, has got he doesn't have to attack the Soviet Union. But what's happened is he doesn't win the Battle of Britain. And although we go we go over the Second World War, we've got to remember uh, Britain stayed in the war. You know, even though, you know, Britain was humiliated in 1940 and Britain didn't actually win a military victory until 1942, until El Alamein against the Germans. But we survived. 
We still had our navy. We still had our trade. We still had the ability to supply our people. Uh, and we still had the Americans. We still had a link with the Americans. The Americans were supplying us with their armaments, you know, through Lend-Lease. And, you know, Hitler decided that he couldn't defeat Britain, really. So he thinks, how am I going to get Britain to come to the negotiating table? Because he, he offers Britain, you know, after he defeats Poland, he offers Britain a peace settlement. Then after he defeats France, he offers Britain a peace settlement again. And he doesn't really understand the British people. The British people don't want a peace settlement with someone who is trying to dominate Europe by force. As far as the British are concerned, and of course Churchill is the embodiment of this, he's not going to have he's not going to have any kind of agreement. He'd rather die, you know, on the beaches himself, you know, and he says, doesn't he, I'll even go to Canada, I'll carry on the fight there. And really, you know, Hitler never grasps this, really, that he hasn't defeated of the British all the time. And we see this, don't we, Paul, in the diplomatic conversations. Every time they meet up with somebody, in 1940 is a good example when Molotov meets Hitler and he, and he meets Ribbentrop. And at one point, uh, Ribbentrop is saying, the, the British are defeated. Forget about them. It's over for the British. You know, they've had it. And, uh, and Molotov starts me, he says, forgive me, he says, because uh, they're, in, they're in Berlin. He says, uh, forgive me, he says, what are those bombs dropping outside there? He said, if the British are defeated, what are they doing dropping those bombs? And it's a great point. And so yeah. then he decides, after the meeting with Molotov, uh, he decides the, Soviet, the, the pact with the Soviet Union has got to be broken and he's going to attack the Soviet Union. He's going to go back to his hold. Mein Kampf idea that he's got to gain living space yes. at the expense of the Soviet Union. So he goes, he changes his tack which is it sh it, he should have tried, really, if you look back on the war, he should have tried to wait and knock Britain out of the war before he ever decided to attack the Soviet Union. In fact, he should never have decided to attack the Soviet Union because that, that was his big mistake. But it was, was there a hope then, um, I mean, going back to, the, to, the, to the, the, the cooperation with the Japanese who weren't in the war yet? Um, exactly. Yeah. In, in that year, was, was the hope that they might reduce British influence or at least well, well he, he keeps he, Hitler in those meetings you mentioned with uh, Matsuoka he he tries to get the Japanese to take British possessions in the Far right. East he sort of says look you've There's got a great chance Singapore. to take those British possessions um, and, and he actually warns that he actually warns them against attacking America he says take the British possessions they're the easiest even Ribbentrop even at the Nuremberg trial Ribbentrop said we never wanted the, we never wanted America to come in the war we, you know we never wanted that he said then the Japanese took that initiative and that's where you get the lack of coordination you know between um the Japanese and Hitler and Mussolini there's no cooperation between them they all operate separately Japan attacks Pearl Harbor and Hitler doesn't even know about it. Hitler attacks the Soviet Union and the Japanese don't know about it, nor does Mussolini. He sends him a letter the night before. <laughs> and they're meant to be allies. And they're meant to be allies. In this clip, in this extract, um, this is December 1941. Now, Guderian goes to the Wolf's Lair to speak to Hitler um, because Army Group Centre... Barbaros has started Army Group Center outside Moscow. So maybe um, briefly um, set the scene for us. Um, well, basically, what, I mean, they went to Moscow, but they didn't take it. 
Well, basically, what happened is in in the preamble for this, Hitler has this idea that he doesn't want to take Moscow. You know, he says, you know, Moscow's not the prize. He said, the prize I want is in the south. It's the oil fields of the Caucasus. That's what I want. He said, said, my generals don't understand the economic dimensions of war. I need the grain of the Ukraine and I need the oil of the Caucasus. I'm going to continue a large-scale war. He said, they're looking for a big military victory like Napoleon. He said, I don't want to go down that road. He realizes, and he's quite right, that if he doesn't take Moscow, everybody around the world is going to say, he's another Napoleon. You know, so it is a pivotal moment. So what happens is, and they do look like they're going to take Moscow. You know, they sweep, they're sweeping eastward. They get within. I think there's a view, isn't there? How many, how many, how long, how far they got? There's actually a, a there's actually a statue that shows that they got within 17 miles of Moscow. That's as near as they got. So that when you come into this guy Fyodor von Bock, he's the head of Army Group Center. Army Group Center is the, is the most fearsome army group because the German army is split into three armies, Army Group A, Army Group, you know, Army Army Group uh, North, Army Group Centre, Army Group South. And really, these armies are, you know, the the Army Group Centre is the pivotal one. And Bach has got so close to Moscow. But then, of course, the winter's starting to come. They haven't got winter clothes. And so, so really, and, and, you know, and Halder as well realizes, you know, that, 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 that they can't, they can't win. And then, of course, the Soviets, the, extract you're looking at the soviets then mount this massive counteroffensive using these siberian forces because they don't have to worry about them and and then of course you know they they're retreating for the first time in the war on the eastern front they're in retreat and so that's when halder goes to visit hitler in in the in the in this extract yeah and he goes to he goes to uh rastenburg doesn't he to so the wolf's lair and the wolf's lair was um that, that was a that was a place that he had built, wasn't it? He, I need re, he yeah, sort of it was repaired to. Built, yeah. spent, he, in fact, let me just read you a little bit about that. Uh, it, it says uh, another paragraph you wrote about that. He says Hitler had departed by special train from Berlin on the twenty third of June, nineteen forty one, for his new military field headquarters, dubbed the Wolfschanze, the Wolf's Lair, in a forested area near Rastenburg, in East Prussia. It was from this gloomy complex surrounded by barbed wire topped fences and hidden away in the Missourian woods, that Hitler would command the German-Soviet war. He would remain at the Wolf's Lair for most of the next three and a half years. Here he was cut off, not just from the centre of government in Berlin, but far away from the horrors on the battlefield, and later the bombing of German cities. Hitler felt that this detachment would help him to make more rational rather than emotional decisions. Uh, On the 20th of December 1941, Guderian flew to the Wolf's Lair to outline to Hitler the dire position of the Army Group Centre outside Moscow and to ask him for permission to retreat even further. Hitler showed absolutely no sympathy for this line of argument, angrily telling Guderian that German soldiers should dig in and fight where they stood. Hitler accused Guderian of being too deeply impressed by the suffering of the soldiers. You feel too much pity for them. You should stand back more. Believe me, things appear much clearer when viewed at a distance. Hitler had no idea, no desire to hear about the suffering that he was inflicting on German troops. Guderian later recalled that although Hitler constantly spoke about his time as a soldier in the First World War, his character had little in common with the thoughts and emotions of soldiers. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, that's quite chilling. Isn't it? I mean, you know, so he had he he he, he found this detachment. Yeah, you know? yeah. It, you know. it, it, it shows how little. I mean, you know, you know, we know that you know Stalin had little worry about you know civilians getting killed and soldiers getting killed, and we see that with Hitler. You know, take a bit of you know. We know all your soldiers. You've been at the front. You've seen them yeah. die. But I've got a bit more detachment here. That yeah. gives me you know, and and it does show. It does show that Hitler really does. He doesn't value human life at all. Um, this might be a good time to ask you actually, um, how how to put it. What, the idea of fighting a war on two fronts—I mean, it's commonly assumed now that you know this was the the, the great, the big mistake was was Barbarossa. Um, you know, we know that. Um, you know, thinking back, even Churchill in the Commons was saying, you know, he knows he's going to have to beat us in these islands or lose the war. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and people were keen for a second front, knowing that it would weaken the Germans' chances. But I suppose my question is a simple one: what, whose idea was it? I mean, who who was keenest? Uh, was it Adolf Hitler, or was well, it his? Was it, was it his generals about well, it, what's invading inter- the Soviet Union? What's, what's interesting is that you know the, the 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 accepted view is that you know it's Hitler. Hitler makes this decision to 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 attack the Soviet Union in isolation from everybody else, and he forces it on his generals. When in truth, it was actually the German High Command that did, that that actually suggested the actual plan for Barbarossa and presented it to him before before. Um, December 1940. So in actual fact, although at the Nuremberg trials and in their memoirs, they tried to blame it all on Hitler. Oh, you know, if only he'd listened to us, he wouldn't have got into this terrible mess. They supported it. They were all anti-Soviet. They were all anti-Bolshevik. They all, all saw the Russians as, you know, subhuman and second-class citizens. So they were responsible as much as Hitler was responsible. So they brought the plan. Hitler said, oh, it fits fits in with my ideas. So in a way, it was a little bit like the Manstein situation. They brought the plan. He said, I like this plan. It's my plan anyway. You know, and and he goes back to the Mein Kampf idea. So in a way, yeah, I, I think I think that it's his decision to broaden the war. It's his decision to fight on two fronts. But Hitler, as we've seen, you know, as we've seen all the way through this two two volumes, Hitler's a gambler. Yeah. You know, Hitler's a gambler. Yeah. He he throws everything. Yeah. He stakes everything on one throw of the dice. Here, he's, uh, the Manstein, you know, plan yeah. could have went all wrong, in, as they say. Yeah, it's, he's, he's all, all in. in. He's not. Yeah. He's not. You know, it's not like sort of. There's no each way mm. bet with Hitler. Everything's in, and he takes another gamble. And that Moscow, as we've seen here, it's starting to go wrong. And, and we, we see what we see then is this kind of amazing situation where Hitler's solution is to sack everybody. You know, I mean, I think he sacks around about 43 different generals at the yeah. time. The, the yeah. guy you mentioned, Fieder von Bach, he gets sacked. He comes back. I mean, he sacks Halden. He comes back. Um, um, you know, there are people he sacks who get sacked about six times and then come back and come back later. Let's move into... Um... 1942. 1942, which you've called War Against the Jews. Um, and this extract conter- concerns uh, the Vansay Conference. Um, and now I'm thinking about when we went to that house, you and me, didn't we? Yeah, we visited uh, it last we, year. You, yeah, yeah, last was, June, I think it was. Last I was quite shocked. I remember being quite shocked to see it. 
but but also, I don't know, but, and it was full of children, wasn't it? Full of um, yeah, yeah, local and German school children. And there was a nice little restaurant, teachers. and it was a sunny yeah. day, wasn't it? And then we got the wrong bus and things like that, didn't yeah. we? <laughs> yeah. And then and then it was like we were sitting on the grass, when it was a lovely lake, isn't it? It's a beautiful setting, isn't it? It's a it's a if you tell them the the mm. setting, it's a beautiful setting, isn't it? Where it is, it's it's like a suburb, isn't it? And it's it is now. But you were saying that you'd been there years ago, and it was. When it was still a oh, bit, still run, yeah, still a bit run the, down. Because the German government, the West German government, didn't give a lot of money to, to oh. a memorial site. You know, this was something that only happened after unification. Before then, they weren't willing to look at these things like the Holocaust. The Holocaust was something that they didn't even teach in schools in the 1960s in Germany. They wanted to sort of sweep it on under the carpet and, and and at this conference van say what it is is it's it can it the, the chapter on that is about the holocaust and of course the holocaust is going on it starts with a kind of an evolution as i say the holocaust is an evolution it starts off with the attack on poland and the ghettoization of jews in poland then in the attack on the soviet union they create these killing squads the einsatz group and and they start killing people out in the open and heinrich himmler he goes to minsk to see one of these mass shootings where you know they get the people to take all of their clothes off to to dig their own grave and then they're mowed down with machine guns and himmler is physically sick and he comes back to talk to to other people in the government and he says look you know this is too psychologically taxing he's not worried about the victims he's worried about the people carrying out the attack and he says we've got to find a different way of doing this so they start gradually to move towards what we would see as the extermination camps so vance the, the conference that takes place which is chaired by reinhard heydrich takes place on the 20th of january January 1944, and it's been delayed. It was supposed to take place in December, but it was delayed because of the attack on on Pearl Harbor. So you've got all of the kind of state organizations here who are here. And what he's asking them is he's telling them, you know, we want to have a final solution of the Jewish question. And there's been debate over, you know, what was said uh, at this, you know, in, in the actual minutes, you know, some of the people there actually say, oh, they weren't saying that it was outright um, because the minutes, course, the, the minutes were discovered. Is that right? The minutes were discovered they were discovered only after the war by an American uh, uh, officer, a, a legal guy who was involved in the Nuremberg trials, and he found the minutes. And the minutes were typed up by Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann. Of course, Eichmann's trial take place later, and he said, "No, no, it was, it was definitely about." annihilation of the Jews. And then what happens in the rest of 1942 is that, you know, most of the Jews, 60% of the Jews who are killed uh, in the Holocaust are killed in 1942. They're killed at these three, uh, what are called Operation Reinhard camps. They're called Operation Reinhard later because Reinhard uh, Heydrich gets killed. He gets assassinated in 1942. So they're sort of posthumously awarded to him. These are the, the this this thing, and, and and one of them is Treblinka, the other is Sobibor, and the other one is Belzec. So here we are in early in the year in January, uh, and we're at the villa. Um, Heydrich made clear that the final solution involved tracking down all Jews in Europe and transporting them to the east. Able-bodied Jews would be assigned hard labour mostly heavy construction work, and would be eliminated by what was described as extermination through labor. Older Jews, meaning those over 65 from Germany and some Western countries, 
would be deported to an old-age ghetto in Theresienstadt concentration camp, where they would die from limited food rations. The unmentioned remainder faced special treatment, which had already become an SS euphemism for extermination. First, the Greater German Reich and the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia would be cleared of Jews. Then the whole of Europe would be combed from west to east, and all Jews transported eastwards and held in camps and ghettos. Heydrich then explained how an extension of the final solution to the occupied and satellite countries would follow negotiations between local and military governments. Slovakia, Croatia, Italy and Greece would present no problems in cooperating, he said. But Hungary and Romania might offer resistance. As for France, Heydrich thought that it might prove difficult getting hold of every Jew there, particularly in the unoccupied zone. This might also be the case in Belgium and the Netherlands. Yeah. And, well, really, he, he was, and this was a commission that he was given by Goering, which, yeah. you know, which, which he stressed to them at the meeting and said, you know, mm. this, is, this is it. Um, but he, he was given that letter on the 31st of July. It's actually reprinted in the book. Mm. Uh, from Goering. And so what we see there, what we see what happens, you know, some people have said, oh, how significant was this conference? But when you look at how close it is to the opening of these three extermination camps, you know, mm-hmm. it, it does take on a significance. Mm. So we suddenly see that some people, like, for example, in Go- Goebbels' diaries, we see that he only gets to find out about it a month later. Mm. Um, so they went all, not everybody yeah. was- so, and, and, and that really is a big focus of, of, of yeah. the chapter on 1942. And, of course, then it goes on to Hungary. So the Holocaust actually is a big theme of the book. You know, yeah. the people who, yeah. who who talk about, you know, a Hitler biography, you won't get this much, much coverage of the Holocaust yeah. as you would in a book about Germany. This book's about Germany. It's not about Hitler. See, see and all, that, all of that is all about the the suffering of the of the people in the camps and I go into great detail don't I in, about those Absolutely. particular camps let's it move is. on um through because of time constraints let's go into 1943 which you've titled the Wehrmacht retreats um and the clip actually is from the end of the year it's a, it's it's about the end and the surrender at Stalingrad uh the the, the destruction of the 6th army um, it's 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 in but, February February forty three when when the just surrender happens. I was just yeah. testing. <laughs> yeah, but the the uh, so so what, what we have the, this is sort of the start of the big retreat, isn't it? Because this is the moment at which you know we have a a real battle. Whereas you know you could say the the holding the Germans at Moscow was not a military victory; yeah. it, was a, it was a survival, like the British survived the Battle of Britain. But here we have an outright military victory. Here we have, you know, one of the most famed German armies, the German Sixth Army, the very same army that captured uh, Paris, the very same army that actually is centre to the parade through Paris after the victory there. And here they are in Stalingrad. And, of course, there's this amazing uh, manoeuvre where, you know, called Operation Uranus, where they're trapped in Stalingrad, mm-hmm. and then and then you know then von, Paulus, sorry, everyone calls him von Paulus. He was never von Paulus. He's he's Paulus, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he's he's actually given Hitler makes him a field marshal 
you know, at the end of January, he makes him a field marshal. And then... But isn't that just to encourage him to shoot himself? To, to encourage, yeah, he wants him to shoot himself. He doesn't want him to surrender. He wants him to fight to the last man. And that's where this, the next... So, bit so, so all over that, over that Christmas and the New Year back in Germany, I mean, the defeat is inevitable. The mood must have just been... It's been desolate, really. Well, as we see in the book, the German people don't know about it. The German people are kind of kept in the dark. It's only like later on through word of mouth because yeah. soldiers are coming back. Yeah. They can't keep it a secret anymore. So they try to actually keep it a secret. You know, it's the days before 24-hour satellite television yeah, and yeah. mobile phones. You could keep things a secret. So the only way of getting to know about this was word of mouth. So here we have a pivotal moment, really in the German-Soviet war, the, the defeat of the Sixth Army at Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the point at which Hitler goes crazy, doesn't yeah. he, about it says, powers? Yeah. It says Hitler was totally disgusted by the surrender of powers. To his generals at the midday military conference at the Wolf's Lair on the 1st of February 1943, Hitler delivered a bitter tirade against Paulus and his fellow officers. They have surrendered there formally and absolutely otherwise... They would have closed ranks, formed a hedgehog, and shot themselves with their last bullet. And as he ranted on, the Fuhrer became more emotional about what he saw as Paulus's betrayal. It hurts me so much because the heroism of so many soldiers is destroyed by a single spineless weakling. And the main thing is, what is he going to do now? You have to imagine it. He comes to Moscow. He sees the rat cage. That's in, that's in the Lubyanka prison, isn't it? Uh, he'll sign everything there. He'll make confessions and appeal. What most wounded Hitler was the fact that he promoted Paulus to field marshal to give him a final consolation before killing himself. That's the last field marshal I shall appoint in this war, he says. Yeah. But it was the defeat, like you say, was... It was... I, get, well, not, I suppose it's just another turning point in the war, but it was... But it was a huge psychological blow, wasn't it, for all? I think it, it, these two blows—the Moscow, the failure to take Moscow, and then and then Stalingrad. Yeah. You know, he again he risked everything on Stalingrad as a yeah. kind of last ditch kind of way of you know turning the tide of the war. And and really, you know, it's another massive psychological blow. Yeah. Um, and, and in a way, he, he actually collapses. He actually does collapse. He physically collapses after Stalingrad. You know, he yeah. ends up going back to. Um, he ends up he ends up going back to the Berghof. That's his that's his kind of big sort of um, you know government complex mm, uh, in mm, outside mm. Munich. You know mm. where he has all his cronies. He's got thirty rooms. It's a huge. Some people call it a holiday chalet. It's far from a holiday chalet. So he goes back there then for three months. To convalesce, yeah, to convalesce from it because he's kind of attacked. And then, and then you know Ava Braun sees him and she says, "God, he's 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 aged about yeah. ten years." And, you know, and there's talk about, you know, now this is where he starts to develop Parkinson's disease now. You know, his, his, le- he, his, his leg physically shakes, his hand shakes. He's got all these problems, physical problems. And, you know, he's under a, lot, he's under a hell of a lot of pressure now uh, at, this, at this particular time, 1943. Well, and then, 40, of course... Into 44, which you've into called... Into 44. Losing battles. Um, yeah. It, it only gets worse. Um, I think the thing I've got to say, Frank, the thing I, the, the biggest thing I personally took from this chapter was bagration, which I knew little about, um, and I'm now convinced is the most important battle of the war. 
Um, but because Norm, the Battle of Normandy was taking place at the same time and my dad was there and everything else, you know, so I was kind of emotionally attached to it. But um, it happens to be Bagration, which, well, now for me anyway, um, um, really does turn the war. This, this clip we're about to uh, hear um, is actually, if this is actually set inside the Fuhrer bunker. Um, but before that, maybe... Maybe just set the scene for us. You know, we you've got well, Normandy, you've got you've got Bagration, um, and, and again you've got Army Group Centre in the firing line. Well, um, you, you, well, you've got 1944. I mean, it's a, and you've got the bomb plot. You've got the bomb plot. You know, and then and you, you know, you know, later on you got Rommel. You know, Rommel kill. You know, Rommel sort of forcibly kills himself. Mm. So, and you've got sort of the start of the major bombing attack on Germany with the Hamburg attack. But 1944 is pivotal because what we get then is we get the real two-front war in, on, on the continent of Europe for the first time. Yeah. So what, what we get in, in 1944 is the D-Day landing. We get the, 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 the invasion of Italy, you know, and then the, 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 the Allies are stopped in Italy halfway. They get halfway up the boot and then they're stopped. But then we get, you know, the D-Day landing, which, of course, for the British and, and for the Americans, the D-Day landing is the war. It's the D-Day landing that, 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 that is the Western war. And so, you know, you will find that when we have our celebrations of the um, VE Day, no one mentions that. No one comes forward. No Red Army soldier gives a speech and says, I was at Operation Bagration. But in actual fact, Bagration, Operation Bagration, which actually starts on the 23rd of um, June, you know, not long after the D-Day landing, is actually a way of having a kind of, you know, an anvil, you know, putting Hitler between two, the two sides on each side. You've got the Western forces land uh, on D-Day, but by then they haven't really broken out of the bridge yet. By the 23rd, they haven't really broken out of their bridge yet in Normandy. They're still confined to mm-hmm. Normandy. And then Stalin plans this massive attack. And he and he, he picks out. It's called it's called the Bielorussian balcony. He sees there's a, there's a weakness there, mm. and of course it's the same crowd who were trying to take Moscow. It's Army Group Center, so there's something sort of biblical about it. Mm-hmm. Here they are in 1943, and, and Stalin picks those out. The the Soviet high command says that's the weak point now, because they've run out of tanks. You know, they're no longer a mobile tank unit led by panzers. They're mainly infantry. And so he says, this is a weak point. And they attack through the centre, Operation Bagration. And within two weeks, they've pushed them, they've pushed them back. They've pushed, they pushed them back 200 miles. They've retaken, uh, they've retaken all of Bayela, Russia. They've taken Minsk. They keep moving. And all the way through the summer of 1944, as a result of Bagration, Army Group Center is destroyed. Yeah. It's completely destroyed. You know, the, 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 you know, one of the most potent parts of the German army on the Eastern Front has been destroyed. And really, it's wide open. Really, the terrain now is wide open. It's, uh, Operation Bagration is uh, Operation Barbarossa in reverse yeah. with with the with yeah. the Soviet Union taking the initiative. So really, you know, that is the point at which the real turning point of the German-Soviet war takes place. And really now Hitler, he's really in trouble. And that's draining the resources still off the off the Western front of it. So it does weaken also the, the ability of the forces in the West to meet the attack in the West. Absolutely. And then, of course, by September, the you know, the Allies do take the whole of France. 
So, you know, by September, Hitler's in real trouble and uh, he, he, he takes to his bed. He does become, phys- you know, he becomes physically, we think, looking at Morel's notes, we think he had a heart attack then as well. And then there's sort of a big debate amongst his doctors. Two other doctors say Dr. Morel is poisoning him with strychnine. Yeah. So there's a big battle between yeah. the doctors. And Hitler sides with his old Dr. Morel, you know. This is your man who's been him. there since 30. He's been there since 30, 30, 30, 30, yeah. 36, yeah. So he's been there all that time. The private doctor, you know, later adopted by Elvis and Michael this little, Jackson. This little clip, uh, which which is kind of delicious if chilling, um, it's like the Mad Atta's Tea Party. This is the day This is the day of the bomb plot, isn't it? And that Where, takes place the same year, 1944. In July. It's such an amazing year, yeah. And hours later, Mussolini arrived. So what's going to be the, the very last face-to-face meeting with Adolf Hitler? Coincidentally, because Mussolini was going to come that day. He didn't know it was going to be the day that, that, yeah. that Stauffenberg tries to kill Hitler. So the, the bomb plot has taken place yeah. just three and a half hours before the bomb plot has taken place, and they end up, don't they, yeah, having says, tea in yeah, his bunker. It says, it says at about 5 p.m., Mussolini was, this is on the day, Mussolini was having tea and cake inside the Führer's bunker. Also present were Goering, Ribbentrop, Dönitz and Keitel. They were already debating who was responsible for the bomb attack and the tensions between them were laid bare. Dönitz lashed out at the obvious disloyalty of the army. Goering supported him and then turned on Ribbentrop, claiming the assassination attempt was yet another failure of German intelligence. The discussion became ever more vicious with Goering at one point calling Ribbentrop a dirty little champagne salesman. In reply, Ribbentrop yelled, I am still the foreign minister and my name is Von Ribbentrop. (laughs) Then the brutality of the Night of the Long Knives in 1934 was brought up as an example of how to deal effectively with traitors. At this point, Hitler jumped to his feet, saying that the Rome purge was nothing compared to the revenge he would now inflict on those involved in this betrayal. He would shoot them all. I'll put their wives and children into concentration camps and show them no mercy. Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Or what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And into 1940, into 1945, um, yeah. which you've uh, entitled Funeral in Berlin. Um, and this clip, actually, this is, uh, this is right from the end, in fact, right from the end. But maybe before I read it, perhaps you could briefly summarise uh, the preceding months, you know, of, of, I mean, the battle for Berlin and, uh, you know, and, and where, where Hitler now finds himself. Well, in a sense, you know, the situation by the end of 1944 is pretty hopeless anyway. You know, the, the Russians are are moving forward in the east, uh, mm-hmm. in the west. You know, the, the, we've recaptured France. We haven't yet got over the Rhine, by the way. And then, of course... Uh, the Russians then mount this massive attack in January and February 1945, and they and they really get into Germany. Then the only thing left is to attack uh, Berlin. You know they, they've yeah. taken, but they've they're in Germany now. They're they're basically on the gates of. They're almost they're in West Prussia. They're they're almost on the gates of Berlin now. Yeah. And then the Allies come over the bridge at Ramark in a very famous film, as we know, uh, yeah. in a very famous moment because that's the moment at which the Western Allies then start to move in the West. And you know, and all the towns start falling in a cascade, mm. left, right, and centre. So really, you know, Hitler's really is coming to a big end, and he ends up going to um, he goes back to he goes to a bunker 
which is which is already built uh, on in this the, clip. He the old he, right chancellery. This is this is how you described him um, dictating his last will and testament to travel. And it gets to the point where he thinks, uh, you know, the game's up. And know, that's the day uh, of the wedding. It's, it's the same day that he, he got and he marries Mary Ava Braun on the, the same of, day. And yeah. that night, he he slips away from the wedding. Yeah, and uh, it's, ceremony yeah, that's what you to, say. You to say go Hitler, with his it, with yeah. his uh, secretary. Hitler slipped away to the secretarial room to dictate his last will and testament to travel younger. She took down every word in shorthand and typed it up in triplicate. Hitler began by reciting his political testament. The first part was an overview of his explanation for why the war had started and the reasons for Germany's defeat. There was no hint of regret or remorse whatsoever. Hitler judged himself not guilty in the court of his own poisoned mind. Hitler took absolutely no responsibility for any of the horrors that he'd inflicted on the world. He denied he even wanted a war in 1939. It had been provoked exclusively by those international statesmen who, were, who either were of Jewish origin or worked for Jewish interests. He'd never wanted war with Britain or America at all. Three days before the attack on Poland in 1939, he continued, he proposed to the British government a reasonable solution to the Polish-German problem. This was flatly rejected because the ruling clique in England wanted war for commercial reasons and partly because it was influenced by propaganda put out by international Jewry. It was the Jews who were responsible for all of the deaths on the battlefield and in the bombed out German cities. Hitler then predicted Germany's role in the war would go down in history as the most glorious and heroic manifestation of the struggle for existence. He promised that he would not allow himself to fall into the hands of the enemy, but he insisted. I have therefore decided to remain in Berlin and there to choose death voluntarily at that moment when I believe that the position of the Führer and the Chancellery itself can no longer be maintained. I die with a joyful heart in my knowledge of the immeasurable immeasurable deeds and achievements of our peasants and workers and of a contribution unique in the history of our youth, which bears my name. And oddly, there was no mention of his political testament, in his political testament, of his bitterest enemy, the Bolsheviks, nor any explanation as to why he launched the unprovoked attack on the Soviet Union on the 22nd of June 1941. Also missing was any reference to the National Socialist Party or the SS, the two organizations he'd created, except to state that he accepted that National Socialism is now a dead ideology. Hitler then insulted the German army especially its highest-ranking officers, whom he chiefly blamed for the military disaster now facing Germany. He asked the commanders of the three armed services to prefer death to any cowardly resignation or capitulation. Nevertheless, he still claimed that the ultimate aim for the German people in the future was to win territory in the East. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's 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 chilling, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you know, you you read that, you know, with such passion, but but it's chilling to hear that. It's chilling to hear those words that, you know, at the end of his life, there's no regrets at all. Um, he blames it all on the Jews. So so it, all of that sort of beer hall stuff is still within him. He hasn't changed. Nazism is dead. It's, it's a dead Nazism ideology. is dead. But if it's going to come back in any form, you know, it's going to come back and try and get territory. He's, he's even saying that if it comes back, it'll be militaristic and it'll, and it'll go to war again. So there's nothing that's changed. And, 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 and Charlie Young is really shocked, isn't she? She says mm. she's really shocked. And, I, and when you read that, you can just be in that room 
with her and say, oh, my God, you know, how, how can he say that? And that was his mind, wasn't it? In a way, we see as well, Hitler's lost yeah. all of those skills that he had as a politician, yeah. and he's back as the kind of beer hall, you know, narrow-minded, uh, anti-Semitic, you know, uh, dogmatic person that he ever was. And, yeah. and, and no way is he going to say that he did anything wrong you know, he didn't do anything wrong as far as he was concerned. Mm. It was all, a, wouldn't you know, it was all a big plot by the Jews and the, in a conspiracy. And I think that, yeah. that is a, an amazing sort of... Let's talk about, let, let's, um, before, we, before we leave, let's talk about the aftermath as you've described it. Uh, and this final clip um, um, involves exactly that. You've written, um, since the reunification of Germany in 1990, there has been a very noticeable willingness of younger Germans who had no personal involvement in what happened during the Nazi era to confront many inconvenient truths about it. Steven Spielberg's epic Schindler's List in 1993 prompted most German history teachers to take their students to see the film. The crimes of the Wehrmacht, once denied, are now fully acknowledged. The former SS-run German concentration camps of Bergen-Belsen, Dachau and Sachsenhausen are now moving memorials to the victims of Hitler's terror. All German schoolchildren visit them as part of the school curriculum. In Germany in recent years, there has been a flood of new documentaries, films and novels, as well as university courses dedicated to the Holocaust and Nazi war crimes. There's now a Holocaust memorial in the centre of Berlin. In 2001, a Jewish museum opened and is now one of the city's leading tourist attractions. The German democratic government now makes frequent payments to former slave labourers of the Nazi era and to victims of the Holocaust. The heroism of those, of those who stood up to the Nazis is also celebrated in Berlin's German Resistance Memorial Centre. It's now generally accepted most German people during the Nazi era were not just taking orders, but were enthusiastic supporters of Hitler and fought to the bitter end to preserve his criminal regime. It would be a mistake, however, to assume all Germans have finally come to terms with the enormity of what happened during the Hitler years. The victims of Hitler's genocide and their families continue to suffer the pain and grief and the haunting memories. Adolf Hitler's long shadow over Germany and over humanity itself has not yet disappeared, and it probably never will. That's the very end of the book. Um, Again, do I want to ask you about that? Again, what, um, maybe go back slightly. What part of the? I was shocked to actually shocked with a few things in the book, but but the. I was very shocked. If we've got time to discuss it, um, about the com- you described the composition of the West German government. I think it was Adenauer's government in the sixties, fifties, and sixties or seventies. Um, which contained actually quite a quite a number of uh, um, ex Nazis. Uh, well, I think that as I as I call you know I call the final chapter you know Hitler's long shadow 
You know, his long shadow, he's a long shadow over Germany, his long shadow over the world. It's still there, isn't it? He's still yeah. he's still a person who pe- people refer to, you know. I mean, even now, with, you know, with Donald Trump, Donald Trump is getting compared to Hitler in the bunker. You know, wh- whatever happens in, in the world, you know, even if you look at all the debates over anti-Semitism that are going on, you know, in the Labour Party, they come back to, you know, uh, Hitler's Germany. You know, Hitler's Germany is, is still a pressing issue. You know, that's what I said. No, it'll never go away. And, and, you know, it's it's the kind of it's the past that will never pass. Mm. And, you know, and people say, oh, uh, you know, people say to me, oh, no, Hitler again. Right. I say to them this. Study Nazi Germany because it's a study about human nature and it's a study about racism and it's a study about prejudice and where it can lead. And so, yes. I am going to go on about Nazi Germany until the day I die because it's a lesson that we can all learn and it's a lesson that everybody needs to learn. And so, you know, my life's work has been to look at this and I think it's a work of education. We all need to look at why racism happens. And this is a terrible example of what can happen to a democratic society when it plunges under a kind of charismatic leader who leads it right the way to the very end. And in a way, you know, uh, the German people may have given up on, on Nazi party, but they never gave up on Hitler. You know, when, when the Americans did public opinion polls after the Second World War, um, 67% of people in 1947 said Nazism was a good idea, but it was badly implemented. Yeah. Was, there a, was there a process... I think I read, you, you described it, I think, a, a kind of denazification process. Was there an attempt anyway, at least to... Well, to... there was an attempt at denazification, but, you know, you think about it, everybody, was, you're talking about 20 million people were connected in one way or another to the Nazi mm-hmm. party, and the Allies decided, well, the Allies decided, here we come to that thing, don't we? Do we seek out justice or do we look after the economy? Yeah. You know, it's always the parallel, isn't it? Shall we look after the economy? Shall we shall we uh, seek out justice? And in this case, they wanted to revive the West German economy. And so in a way, we created that very funny uh, Basil Fawlty thing, don't mention the war. We gave them the get out card, which was don't mention the war. And the Germans, you know, and, and, and interestingly enough, what's interesting about that episode of Faulty Towers is that the German people do see themselves in that clip as victims. They see themselves as victims. And, you know, and that's, that shows you that even in 1975, that the German people are trying to portray themselves as, as victims. Mm. You know, don't mention the war. The other one we gave them at the Nuremberg trials was, which they all parroted one by one, I was only taking orders. I didn't really believe in the regime. I was only taking orders. Well, now we know, don't we, from oral history, from all of the documentation, we know that they weren't taking orders. They all participated. I mean, take, for example, the order police the group of people who participated in the Einsatz group and the killing squads, they were ordinary policemen. They were at the level of the ordinary policemen and they were asked to volunteer to join the Einsatz group and they got quite nice wages. It was like a revolving door. They went to do their killing and then they came back and they were bobbies on the beat once again. So, I mean, that just shows you about the disconnect. So I think... 
that, you know, the last chapter tries to show you the way the West German society didn't come to terms. And the extract that Paul read out was the ending where in the reunified Germany, there is a willingness to face up to the past. I think I think that's the, the lesson yeah. to yeah. take out of this. Well, Frank, I think that's, we've sailed through an hour. We could easily do another one, couldn't we? Thanks to everyone for tuning in. Thanks, folks. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.